Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Brian Van Norden, the author of Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural Manifesto. Professor Van Norden is the James Monroe Taylor Chair in Philosophy at Vassar College and Chair Professor in Philosophy in the School of Philosophy at Wuhan University in China. He has published numerous books on Chinese and comparative philosophy. You can learn more about his work at brianvannorden.com. In the conversation, Brian and I discuss the meaning behind the title, Taking Back Philosophy, how we should define philosophy today, the benefits of comparative philosophy, the influence of figures like Confucius and Lao Tzu, the role of rituals in society, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and think you will as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Brian Van Norden. Brian, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for having me on. It is an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. And today we're going to be talking about your book, Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural Manifesto. I've really enjoyed going through it. And I found it an interesting read of how the book came to be. I was wondering if you could share the story of what led you to write the book. Yeah, sure. My friend and colleague, Jay Garfield, and I were at a conference organized by the Minorities and Philosophy Group at the University of Pennsylvania. And we were just chatting, and Jay said that he's been saying for years that a lot of philosophy departments in the contemporary West should change their names to departments of Western philosophy or departments of Anglo-European philosophy, because that's all they teach. They don't teach any of the philosophy in other parts of the world, the African tradition, the indigenous uh, traditions of the Americas, East Asian traditions or South Asian traditions. And I said, well, that's a great observation, Jay. We should maybe write an editorial talking about this and see if we can get it published somewhere. So we wrote it up and we didn't think we'd be able to get a really good venue for it. But just on a whim, we pitched it to the New York Times and they had some editorial suggestions and we edited it down a bit and it came out and just overnight it made a huge splash. So it got a lot more interaction on the New York Times website than most of their op-eds do, particularly ones dealing with cultural issues like philosophy it ended up causing a lot of discussion and controversy at academic conferences. Several right-wing websites attacked us for failing to be sufficiently respectful or appreciative of the superiority of the Western intellectual tradition. 
And then a, an editor at Columbia University Press, Wendy Lochner, wrote us and said, well, we're really excited about this. Have you considered writing a book about it? And Jay had a number of other commitments, but I agreed to write the book based on the New York Times article. And then Jay very generously wrote a foreword to it. And that book became Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural Manifesto. Well, I'm glad you did. It's fascinating. And from for someone that is not a professional philosopher and definitely outside the field, it's really surprising. And I'm sure for many of the listeners out there, they would be surprised to, to read that as well. You provided, or maybe I heard it or read it, but some of the statistics around, I think if I remember right, 10% of philosophy departments offer something in Chinese philosophy and even lower than that when it gets to Indian philosophy and on. Exactly. And on the one hand, when people hear about this, sometimes the reaction is to say, yeah, but surely there isn't any philosophy in, in China or East Asia. Surely there isn't any philosophy in India or South Asia. But the fact is, as I explain in the book, when Europeans first discovered philosophy in East Asia, including Confucians, Taoists, Buddhists, and then later when they first discovered philosophy from India, including works like the Bhagavad Gita and the various orthodox schools of Indian philosophy, they immediately recognized it as philosophy and were fascinated by it. In fact, leading figures in the European Enlightenment, like Leibniz, who is still a standard figure in a history of Western philosophy curriculum, were deeply enamored with Chinese philosophy. And Christian Wolff, whose name is not a, it's not a household name nowadays, but he's a major figure in the early Enlightenment, he caused a lot of controversy by praising Chinese philosophers who, whom he identified as philosophers like Confucius and saying that in many ways they were superior to European philosophers. But then what happened with the rise of Western economic imperialism, that's my French bulldog announcing the arrival of the mailman who must be stopped. But then with the arrival, with the development of Western economic and then later military imperialism, there arose a wave of pseudoscientific racism. And I say pseudoscientific to point out that these theories of race were really invented in the the 19th century and to some extent the 18th century. And they purported to be scientific theories, but they're not actually based on empirical observations. And they claim that the white race was superior to all others and hence was the only race capable of doing philosophy. And Immanuel Kant, who is a genuinely brilliant philosopher, of course, and whose work has been appropriated by many people in the cause of liberation and understanding human freedom. But ironically, Kant didn't invent, but he accepted these pseudoscientific notions of race. And he said in his lectures, which we still have, that only whites are capable of doing philosophy. So because of the great influence of Kant's ideas, his later followers rewrote the history of philosophy and wrote Asia and Africa out of the history of philosophy, and they made all of philosophy appear to start in ancient Greece. So the notion that all of philosophy starts in ancient Greece 
and that no other culture came up with philosophy is, first of all, it's just false if you bothered to look at these other rich philosophical traditions. And it's not something that people have always thought. People started to think of it that way because of the rise of Western imperialism and pseudoscientific racism. Well, I definitely appreciate your work to shed light on that and raise that to us that are really outside the field of philosophy, but still searching for wisdom for daily life. I generally ask most people as an initial starting question of what got this whole search started? So I'm curious about that, but maybe also to tie in specifically this interest in Chinese philosophy as well, if you could share how it all started. Yeah, well, actually, it's funny. I often tell my students how I got interested in philosophy because it's a convoluted and funny story. When I was in high school, I decided to just go to the bookstore and grab a book of philosophy off the shelf. I think I just wanted to sound like an intellectual so I could use philosophical terms and make offhand comments about what philosophers thought. And the book I picked up, I remember reading it and pardon my language, but I just said, wow, this is BS. There's no reason anybody should be interested in philosophy. This is, this is just absolutely pointless intellectual game playing. And so I set it aside. Then a few years later, they reinstituted registration for the draft for 18-year-old males. And I was doing debate, interscholastic debate in high school, and we debated, should there be a reinstitution of the draft? If there is a reinstitution of the actual draft, do you have to go? And so I began to think about the obligations of the individual to the state and to what extent can my community ask me to do things that I might disagree with or even regard as morally abhorrent? And now I return to philosophy, and it was exciting and interesting because I could see the practical relevance of the issues to my actual life. And so I always tell my students, if you're reading a philosopher, even one that sounds very abstract and otherworldly, if you don't understand why these issues bother them as a human being, then you don't understand that philosopher. The most abstract philosophy, if it's great philosophy, it's ultimately grounded in a conception of what it is to live well and what the problems facing human beings are. So that second time I got interested in philosophy, I really cared about it. And a, another story I like to tell my students is Plato can be one of the most abstract and theoretically complicated of philosophers. But we actually have a letter surviving from Plato called the seventh letter or the seventh epistle. There's some controversy over whether it's authentic. I think it is authentic. Even if it's not, it clearly represents a view someone in the early Platonic movement in ancient times thought was plausible about Plato's views. So it's clearly a plausible Platonic view. And in the letter, Plato says that he started to do philosophy because of the corruption he saw in Athens. And he came to realize that both wings, I mean, they didn't have left and right wings in ancient Athens, but they were basically the small d Democrats, the people who believed in rule of the many. And then there were the aristocrats, the people who believed in rule by the wealthy and those with hereditary abilities, supposedly. And both wings, he said, he saw both of them in power in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War. And he said both of them were corrupt. 
And he came to realize that there will be no end to problems in society until either rulers become philosophers or philosophers become rulers. And what Plato meant by philosophers wasn't academic nerds like me. What <laughs> Plato meant by philosophers was true lovers of wisdom, people who were actually committed to living well and had learned through a process of education what it was to live well and could be relied upon to do the right thing, even in the face of temptation. And so all of Plato's philosophy is about figuring out how do we cultivate these individuals? And he knows that we don't find virtue in ordinary Athenian society, and he'd say the same thing about our society. But he says, given the right environment, you can produce people who are virtuous. You can cultivate virtue in individuals, and those are the individuals that you want in positions of authority. And then if you're skeptical about that, you say, ah, well, that's, this is why I don't believe in philosophy, because I think that you can't cultivate virtue in individuals the way that Plato thought. Well, then you're a Hobbesian. And so you're a philosopher anyway. It's just you're a different kind of philosopher. And so there are philosophers who take that route as well. But any stance you take, you're going to be taking a philosophical stance on these issues. Like, how do you cultivate virtue? Or if you think you can't cultivate virtue, okay, how's society going to work if you can't cultivate virtue? Fair enough. But what's your theory? It's so interesting and such an important point. And maybe before we get into it, it could be helpful if you could share your definition of what is philosophy? Yeah, that's another great question. And I think that we can't come up with a definition of philosophy, even if we just limit it to the term philosophia in ancient Greek and its cognates in other languages. The things that people called philosophers have done historically have varied so greatly. So at a certain point in history, I mean, this is why Neil deGrasse Tyson has it in for philosophy, the science educator. And I admire him as a science educator, but he's really got it in for philosophy. I think because he had a run-in with some philosophers who pointed out that there were some physicists who were making claims about the origin of the universe that you actually couldn't defend philosophically. And they pointed out the mistakes in them. And he got angry that, you know, he was being corrected. But in, in any case, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a PhD. And so if you get a doctorate in physics or chemistry or mathematics, it's a PhD, which stands for doctor of philosophy. Why is that? Because the people who got doctorates in philosophers were the first physicists. They were the first mathematicians. If you had told, for example, Newton that he was not a philosopher, he would have been offended. He would have said, of course, I'm a philosopher. I'm a natural philosopher. What do you mean? I'm not a philosopher. So if we try to define what philosophy is, some of what philosophy is has become separate fields. As we figured out the right methodology for doing mathematics or physics or astronomy or biology, those spin off as separate fields with their own methodology. And so, but I think if we want to ask, well, what is philosophy for us now? Right? There's no one definition that covers everybody who's been a philosopher at some point in history. But what is philosophy for us now? Philosophy is the discipline in which we discuss issues that we agree are important, but we don't yet agree about the methodology for resolving them. 
If we agree more or less about the methodology for resolving them, then it becomes a specialized discipline like mathematics or physics or biology. But when the issues are important to us, but we don't agree about the methodology for resolving them yet, that kind of dialogue is philosophical. And what kinds of issues are still like that? Issues in ethics, issues about the ultimate structure of the universe. In other words, if you, an example I like to use with my students is, suppose you say, well, I don't believe in philosophy. I just believe in natural science. And then you say, and then I say, okay, so do you think natural science tells us everything there is to know about the universe? And if they say yes, I say, well, bang, you're a naturalist. That's a philosophical position. But science can't tell you that everything there is to know about the universe can be described by science. That would be circular. You've got to step outside the boundary of natural science to say, okay, I guess everything that is significant is discussed by natural science. I think that's a naive position. I think there are many things that natural science can't tell us. But the point is, even if you try to formulate that position, you're taking a stance on a philosophical issue. So that's what I mean by ultimate questions about what's the structure of the universe? Is there anything to the universe that science can't tell us about? That's a philosophical question. Is there a purpose to life? Or if there's not a purpose to life, okay, that's also a philosophical position. What is the obligation of the individual to her or his community? That question that got me started, that's a philosophical issue. And we don't agree about the methodology for resolving these issues, but we can see they're clearly important issues to us. And for me, that's what philosophy is now. And then if we look at other cultures like ancient China or Japan or Korea or Vietnam and East Asia or what is now India or other parts of Southeast Asia, we find that people are clearly addressing these issues and they're addressing it using methods which are often very similar to the ones that are given in Western philosophy. So by any plausible standard, people are doing philosophy in these traditions. I found it heartbreaking to read the chapter where you're talking about the political debate in the U.S., just basically not giving any sort of value to, to philosophy as a field. How did we get there? Was that something that has existed all throughout time? Yeah, the one of the best commentators on culture to this day is Alexis de Tocqueville, and he wrote this classic work, Democracy in America. And he was a French visitor to the United States, but he was remarkably insightful about what's distinctive about Americans. And he said that both the greatest strength but also the greatest weakness of the American people is they tend to be anti-intellectual or the way they phrase it is they're anti-elitist. So the anti-elitism of the American people, on the one hand, it's a strength because Americans tend to think, oh, so your dad's a duke and your mom's a duchess. Who cares? What have you done? He said, that's a really impressive attitude that we can really admire. But the other side of it is that everybody thinks they're equally qualified to talk about all issues. And so the person who knows nothing about natural science thinks that they're entitled to pontificate on natural science. And the person who knows nothing about foreign affairs thinks that they're, they know as much as people who spent their entire life studying foreign affairs. And I, I think we see this to the present day. Kind of the irony, though, and the thing that I think Tocqueville didn't see and couldn't have seen is 
we do have an, a very elitist society in the United States, but the kinds of things we admire are disconnected from actual intellectual achievement. So in the United States, we really admire professional athletes. And I'm not here to dump on professional athletes, but you know, something like, well, I'm, this person's really good at hitting a ball with a stick. And like, oh, no, but this person's really good at throwing a ball, so it's really hard to hit with a stick. And we happen to be friends with somebody who's a former a minor league pitcher. And just you play with him, like, just like with like wiffle ball. It's, it is amazing what the guy can do. And he's not, he wasn't even that good and his arms blown out, but he can still like, like, how do you even do that with a ball? But the thing is, this is not a useful skill for any purpose besides this silly game that we came up with. But Americans are like, Oh, you're good at throwing a ball, so it's hard to hit with a stick. That's somebody I'm going to take seriously about what they think about the world. That's not a, a good start for a culture. Or I would just think about it the other day. Who are some of the commentators on current affairs who are taken the most seriously in the United States and have the widest audience? Well, I mean, not to name names, but we've got a like a pothead who's got like one of the most popular podcasts in the world. He's a former fighting sports commentator. Millions of people hanging on his every word. We've got a lounge comic who's got a show where he interviews celebrities about current events, whose major accomplishment is a movie, The Avocado Jungle of Death. We've got a former someone who lucked out and got an Academy Award winning role, but who's again, another former lounge comic who now gets to host a show that millions of people watch on network television and pontificate about issues he's done no reading on. This is not a good basis for a civilization where we're listening to the people who are the least informed and have the least qualifications. And I understand often people who have really good qualifications can make mistakes too. There were, you know, people who should have known better who said, and this reference, look it up if you're, if this is like too old fashioned of a reference for our audience, but there were doctors who said, oh, thalidomide is completely safe for pregnant women to take. And that turned out to be disastrous. There were, there was a time in U.S. history when children were taken out into the desert to watch atomic bomb tests because uh, experts said, Oh, the radiation is not going to be a problem. It's, you know, there the, and there are people, especially in parts of the Western United States who were developed cancer as a result of being exposed to U.S. nuclear tests. And they were told this was absolutely safe. So I understand why people can be skeptical of experts. Experts can make mistakes too. But if you have to choose between somebody who spent their life studying somebody and somebody who's a third-rate lounge comic to be your source of information about the world, I don't think this should be a hard choice. And this really, it goes back to both Plato and Confucius. Plato and Confucius disagreed about a lot, but they both lived in societies that were in crisis, and they both were convinced the way to solve this crisis is to get the right people with practical wisdom to bring up the theme of the podcast, into positions of government authority. And they both believed it was possible to cultivate these, this virtue of practical wisdom in human beings. And so that's the vision that they had. And I still think there's a lot of power to that vision today. It's so interesting, this idea of 
being a specialist, I guess, if you will, compared to like yourself, a comparative philosophy. You have an interest in Buddhism, Chinese philosophy, Indian philosophy. What are the benefits of a more comparative approach? Like maybe you can be a specialist, but you also take the time to broaden you know, your perspective and explore other traditions. Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of benefits to just having a broad education. And so, for example, and this came up in with the excellent podcast you recently did with Sky Cleary, one of the major schisms in intellectual traditions is between people who think that your essence precedes your existence versus your existence precedes your essence. And that's slogan. I mean, that's one of those things where you hear it and you're like, oh, this is people trying to sound smart and just using complicated words. But when you get the distinction, it's really interesting. And I bring this up as well when I'm teaching the history of thought. To what extent do people think you've got an essence which is defined by a higher power? Maybe that's God. Maybe it's Tian, heaven in the East Asian traditions. Maybe it's Brahman in the Orthodox traditions. But you've got some higher power that defines what it is to be a human being. And true freedom and true happiness consists in living up to this essence that was defined for you by a higher power. And you'll never be happy and you'll never be fully satisfied and you'll never be truly free unless you live up to that essence. And this is the classic Aristotelian view. It's the classic Confucian view. I think ultimately it's the view in the most of the Orthodox traditions, including philosophical Hinduism or Vedanta in the South Asian traditions. Then you've got a view that starts to be developed in the West with thinkers like Nietzsche, and then gets in some ways perfected by thinkers like Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre and Camus, which is that your existence precedes your essence. And that's just a slogan that means you come into existence in the world and then through your actions and through your choices, you define what it is to be a human being. And if you're on, if you've got a sophisticated right wing view in the contemporary world, you're more likely to think that essence precedes existence. And so, for example, when I logged in, it asked me, what are my pronouns? And I'm delighted to provide my pronouns, and I think that's a great thing that we're now doing that. Some people on the right will object, and they'll say, look, well, why do you have to provide them? It's just a pre-existing fact about you, what your gender is. That's the essence that was given to you by a higher power, and it's your job to live up to that. And whereas some people like me would say, well, humans aren't clearly given an essence like that. So... You get a kind of political split that goes with this split in philosophical perspectives, but then you've got a handful of weird people like me, <laughs> and like, I think Martha Nussbaum at the University of Chicago was like this. Charles Taylor has also just developed a view like this. I don't know if Alistair McIntyre would be happy being lumped in with us, but in some ways, I think he's like this. These are people who say, well, look, we don't have to accept the the earlier view that you have a complete, fully formed essence that's given to you by a higher power. But when you create yourself through your choices, this is the way Charles Taylor phrases it, your choices as an individual are significant because they're 
made against a background horizon of meaning. So among all the things that are meaningful, you have to choose which of those things are going to give your life meaning. And that choice is important because these things have value independently of what you choose. So an example I sometimes use with my students is I'll say, I was almost, I was looking for a job on the academic job market for four years. I got some temporary positions, but I couldn't find a tenured position. And so I applied to law school. I got accepted to law school. I was all set to go. And then boom, Vassar offered me a job and I took it. But my wife's an attorney and she's always saying, boy, you should have become an attorney. You'd have been really good at this stuff. You like it more than I do. And so I've got that kind of mind. And I think I would have been a good attorney. So, but then that choice, like, are you going to be an attorney or are you going to be a philosophy professor? That's a momentous choice because those are both good life choices. And they're good life choices independently of my opinion about that. But then my choice to be a philosophy professor now becomes momentous and important because I've narrowed out of the range of meaningful choices the one that is my choice. And so that's a halfway position between the earlier strong view that your essence is as a human being is or as a man or as a woman or whatever, is determined independently of you by a higher power. And the more extreme formulations that you sometimes get in existentialism, where everything's meaningless until you make a choice, and then you create meaning out of ex nihilo, out of nothing, just by your choice. And so that kind of intermediate view is the one that I like, and it's the one that gives continuing relevance to thinkers like Aristotle and Confucius and a text like the Bhagavad Gita that I think had a more strong version of essence preceding existence. I think we can still learn from these works if we read them in a pluralistic. I love that. And I have to follow up and ask something, if anything like this comes up on, on the thing of discernment, discerning a particular path to be a philosophy professor or a lawyer or whatever it may be, fill in the blank with anything. Very difficult <laughs> decisions and questions discerning our particular path in life. For any listeners that might be wrestling with something like that, any words of wisdom that come to mind? Yeah, I think it's like on many things, there's a golden mean here. And this concept of the mean between extremes appears in lots of different wisdom traditions, including this part of the Aristotelian tradition. It's also part of the Confucian tradition. So on the one hand, more knowledge is useful, right? So if you're thinking about one of my one of my teachers, Lee Yearly yeah. in graduate school, used to say to to there were many students at Stanford who wanted to become medical doctors. And that was their and this is they're thrown into this because that's what their parents wanted them to do. And also that's because they were a good student, they're like, oh well then you should become a physician. And my teacher would sometimes ask them, Do you like doctors? Do you like hospitals? Do you like what do you think a doctor does that you would enjoy doing? And it's amazing how many very bright students had never sat down and just asked themselves, is this a career I would actually like? And what would I like about it? So if you're not sure what you should do with your life, one thing that's worth thinking about is learn some more about the options you're considering and what are they really like. So knowledge can be helpful. But there's also, I think, this deep, come back to this term again, like existential moment where you just have to make a choice. And another of my favorite examples comes from Alistair McIntyre. And 
he talks about the grail legends. And we all know the story about if the Indiana Jones movies, you're like, okay, the quest for the Holy Grail. And part of what's fun about the grail legends is on the one hand, they're treated as if this was a literal quest for an actual item. And that's what excites a lot of people about it. And in the Indiana Jones movies, if you remember those, he's actually looking for the actual grail. But the deeper meaning of the grail legends is, McIntyre doesn't say at this point, but ultimately it's about bringing masculinity and femininity into alignment. Because Excalibur, the sword, is a phallic symbol. And the grail is a yonic symbol, which is the feminine counterpart of mm. a phallic symbol. And so Arthur and his knights are questing for both Excalibur, which Arthur gets, but then also you've got to find the grail to bring masculinity and femininity into alignment. So that's the part of the, the mythical meaning of it. But then McIntyre had this great addition. He said, but see, that's the thing, is when you start the quest, you think you're looking for one thing. But when you end the quest, you realize you were looking for something else all along. And he mm. said, this is what human life is like. And that really rings true for me, that I started on a quest to become a philosophy professor at a certain point. I didn't know what it was like to be a philosophy professor when I started. I had some idea. But to be honest, my, I remember the TV, there's a movie and then a TV series, The Paper Chase, about a guy who's becoming an attorney at Harvard Law School. It's an old reference. But anyway, but the, there's a, a great classic actor, John Houseman, plays the professor on The Paper Chase. And he is so austere and humiliating to his students. And I was like, oh, that's what a college professor is like. That would be cool. Oh, I would love to be that guy. And then... Once I start to become a college professor, I realized, oh, no, Houtzman was a terrible example of a teacher. He had no idea how to teach. The last thing you want to do is humiliate your students. That doesn't teach them anything. You want to create an environment where people feel safe and they can share what they think and not be afraid that they're going to be publicly humiliated. And so... And part of the, for me, the challenge, but the difficulty of being a college professor is you have to be very open to your students, even when sometimes you're dealing with an 18-year-old who thinks they know everything, but you've got to create a comfortable environment where that 18-year-old who sometimes, most of them are not like this, but sometimes you get 18-year-olds who think they know everything. You've got to create a comfortable environment where they can see they don't know everything, but they're not turned off by being humiliated by that experience of learning their own ignorance. So I think a, a lot of things in life, you're not going to know what it's like to be an actual physician until you become a physician. You're not going to know what it's like to be an attorney until you become an attorney. You're not going to know what it's like to be an artist until you become an artist. But you can inform yourself a little bit so at least you're not headed towards something that's completely different from what you're expecting it to be. And But then you have to make that ultimate choice and just say, okay, this is what I'm committing to. And sometimes after you make that commitment, you realize, you know what? This career isn't for me. I thought I was going to, there are people who start out being, doing a medical school and they realize, you know what? This isn't what I thought it was. This isn't going to make me happy. You shouldn't give up casually, but you can reach a point where the quest you've started on, you realize isn't a good quest. And so, but there are those elements where you want to learn something about what it is you're getting yourself into, but ultimately you just have to make a choice to commit to something and realize along the way what you've committed yourself to 
I find that a really deep idea that I ultimately got from Alistair McIntyre. That's really helpful. I appreciate you sharing for sure. I wanted to spend a little bit of time and see if we could give a little brief introduction, if we could, to to Chinese philosophy for the listeners. So maybe we could start with two early, early figures and, you know, who they are, Confucius and Lao Tzu. Mm -hmm. Sure. So Confucius, or as he's often known in China, Kongzi, Confucius is a Jesuit Latinization of his name. It's fine to use. I'm just pointing out that's where it comes from. And again, Confucius was born like Plato into a society in crisis and But for both Plato and Aristotle, the solution to the crisis that they saw their societies as being in was to cultivate virtue in individuals and then get those individuals with virtue into positions of government authority. Now, the conceptions they had about how you cultivate that virtue and what a virtuous person looks like are very different between Confucius and Plato. And I'm sometimes accused by my critics of assimilating the two traditions that I don't do that at all. They're very different. But the basic idea that you're in a society in crisis, the crisis is because people are listening to people who think they know what they're talking about, but they don't know what they're talking about. One of Confucius's favorite words of contempt is ning, which means people who can talk in a glib way and convince others, but they don't really know what they're talking about. Like the Boris Johnsons of the world, he's a British example, or I won't mention some of the examples we might pick in the U.S. But so that basic idea is central to Confucius. How do you cultivate virtue and get virtuous people into positions of authority? Now, there were a lot of critics of Confucianism, and there's often a common conception that Chinese culture has always been Confucian, The Confucian movement's been influential since the time of Confucius, which is around 500 BCE, but there's, there have always been critics. One way of understanding the Taoist critique of Confucianism, which is represented by thinkers like the semi-mythical Lao Tzu, who was, according to tradition, Lao Tzu was a contemporary of Confucius. And supposedly he left behind this brief work called the Tao Te Ching, the classic of the way and virtue. It's a challenging work to grasp. But one way of understanding Lao Tzu's critique of Confucianism is to say, look, when you try to cultivate virtue, it becomes a vice. And so the only way to really have virtue is to not try and cultivate it. And that's one of my favorite lines from the Tao Te Ching, the classic of the way in virtue attributed to Lao Tzu, as he says, well, the, there are people who talk about ritual propriety, but then when you disagree with them, they roll up their sleeves and they resort to force. And think about how often that's the case. People in our society, virtue gets a bad name because the people who talk about virtue are often the most corrupt and the most hypocritical. That's what Lao Tzu focuses on in the Tao Te Ching. But then you want to say, okay, but how are we going to get out of the problems that society is in? And the only real advice, this is my interpretation that the Tao Te Ching and Lao Tzu gives us is, well, drop out and live in some primitive communes where you're going to leave technology and society behind. But you could have corruption 
in a simple commune, as anybody who's lived on a commune can tell you. And you don't leave the world behind and its problems just because you've left behind some of modern technology. You're going to have a lot of the same problems. And the Confucians, in fairness, are aware that there's a lot of deformations that can occur when you try to pursue virtue. And Confucians point out that there are semblances or simulacra of virtues where people are pursuing things that they think are virtues and that other people think are virtues, but they're really not. Or there are counterfeits of virtue where people will feign having a certain virtue and it's just they're totally faking it. So the Confucian view more, we realize, yep, cultivating virtue is a hard process. And anytime you try to do it, you are going to get people who are phonies, who are fake. But part of wisdom is learning to distinguish the people who are really pursuing virtue and are getting there from the people who are just faking it. So that's one of the major splits in the Chinese tradition. But there's really so much diversity in it. When people ask me what to read about Taoism, I usually don't send them first to the classic of the way in virtue by Lao Tzu because it's just so difficult to understand. I'll usually send them to the Zhuangzi, which is, and that's written Z-H-U-A-N-G-Z-I. And one of the, there are some selections from the Zhuangzi in an anthology that I co-edited with P.J. Ivanhoe, Readings in Classical Chinese Philosophy. There's also a great translation of it that's a very fun read by a guy named Burton Watson. His Zhuangzi translation is really good. And every time I teach the Zhuangzi, people fall in love with the text. And it's a text that's always trying to subvert your expectations. So just when you think you've understood Zhuangzi, the next passage will come along and it'll subvert what you thought you understood about it. And it opens with this great story of a giant fish, the Zhuangzi does. It's named after its author, the Zhuangzi. It opens with a story of a giant fish that transforms into a giant bird. And because it's a giant bird whose wings are so big that they're like clouds hanging from one end of the horizon to the other. So if you've ever seen like an image like that, imagine the bird's that big. And it flies up. It has to fly really high because it's so big. And then the text says, well, the cicada and the dove laugh at the bird because it has to fly so hot. And they say no real flying is just flying around in the backyard like we do. That's real flying. Well, what are we supposed to make of this story? Now, I teach sometimes at Wuhan University in China, and there's actually a statue to the giant fish turning into the giant bird on the campus. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it was paid for by the first class that graduated from Wuhan University at the end of the Cultural Revolution. And the universities were closed during the Cultural Revolution. And the first class, when they opened the university again, they went on to become very successful and they paid for the statue. So for them, clearly, the giant fish turning into a giant bird and being laughed at by the cicada and the dove were supposed to identify with the giant bird and think, well, that bird is cool. And it gets laughed at by these petty little creatures that don't understand it. But another way to read the story is that the only mistake the cicada and the dove has made have made is that they expect the giant bird to be like them. 
The giant bird flies the way that's appropriate for the giant bird that it is, but the cicada and the dove fly in the way that's appropriate for the kind of creatures that they are. And you shouldn't expect them to fly like the giant bird, but you also shouldn't expect the giant bird to fly like them. And so some Chinese commentators say this is the point of the story, that everybody has their own nature, their own individual nature, and you have to live up to your own individual nature instead of trying to make yourself follow the one supposed universal nature that the Confucians want you to follow. And this goes back to that issue we were talking about, does existence precede essence? Do you first exist and then you create your essence? Or do you have an essence? And so on this reading of the Zhuangzi, this great Taoist work, the point is that people have different natures and you have to figure out and follow your individual nature. And that's when you'll truly be free. And that's when you'll truly be satisfied when you find out who you are. So when I was young, just old, I'm 59, so I'm old enough to remember when there were lots of people alive, including my father, who were World War II veterans. So there were so many movies about World War II and TV shows about World War II. So I did go through a phase where I thought, oh, I want to be an, I want to be an army officer and I want to serve in combat. Well, knowing who I am now, that is not what I'm cut out to be. I am not cut out to be a Marine colonel by any means. So part of my quest, my grail quest, was recognizing, no, you might have thought that when you were a kid. That's not who you are. You, you could be a teacher. You could be an attorney. Maybe there's some other things you'd be good at. But, you know, Marine colonel is not on the list of things that you're cut out to be, Van Norton. So <laughs> recognizing your own individual nature can be part of your quest. So interesting. And I believe I've heard you recommend when it comes to Confucianism, maybe not necessarily starting with the Analects. Where's a good spot to start? Yeah, great point. Yeah. I, what I often tell people to start with is if you want to start with Confucianism, I don't want to discourage people from reading the Analects, the sayings of Confucius. If you do, my colleague Ted Slingerland's Complete translation with selections from traditional commentaries is a great place to start. If you want to start with Taoism, I actually don't recommend the Tao Te Ching, the classic of the way in virtue attributed to Lao Tzu. If you do want to read it, I recommend Richard John Lin's translation, which includes the classical commentary by Wang Bi. But if you want to start somewhere readable with the Taoist tradition, start with Zhuangzi. Burton Watson translation is great. If you want to start with the Confucian tradition, I represent, I rec recommend Mengzi, also known by the Latinization of his name, Mencius. And at the risk of being self-promoting, I translated the Mengzi, M-E-N-G-Z-I. And Mengzi is called the second sage of the Confucian tradition, meaning second in importance only to Confucius himself. And his work is very readable and very multifaceted. And it, I often tell students, in the Western tradition, we like to say that you're either a Platonist or you're an Aristotelian. That's an oversimplification, but it's an oversimplification in the direction of truth. And then this famous painting, Raphael's School of Athens, which has been done a thousand times on all kinds of textbooks and things, it, right in front of the focal point in the painting, you've got Plato gesturing up to the heavens and Aristotle gesturing down to the earth, suggesting the fundamental difference in orientations. In the Chinese tradition, again, useful oversimplification is you're either going to be a Zhuangzian or you're going to be a Mengzian. And Mengzi says you got to cultivate virtues 
to be a better person. And once you've done that, you will naturally work to help others in your community the best you can. And Zhuangzi, in contrast, has a much better sense of humor than Mengzi does. One of my colleagues, Christoph Harzmeyer, says Mengzi has at most the kind of smug sense of humor of the minister or the rabbi, the kind of person who makes a joke in the, in the homily where it's a joke and you kind of laugh politely, but it's mostly a very didactic kind of joke that Mengzi makes. Whereas Zhuangzi has got a really good sense of humor and you'll often openly laugh in reading the Zhuangzi because Zhuangzi teaches you to laugh at life and to laugh at the pretensions of human beings and to just accept who you are and what role you perform in the universe. Whereas Mengzi has an ethics of aspiration. He wants you to aspire to actualize your capacities. And Mengzi says, look, everybody's got a potential to have benevolence, which is manifested in your compassion for the suffering of others. Everybody has a capacity to develop righteousness or integrity, which is manifested in your sense of shame when you contemplate selling out or accepting a bribe, or cheating on a test. Everybody has a capacity for deference manifested in ritual propriety and social norms. And everybody has a capacity for wisdom manifested in your ability to practically solve problems and to make good judgments of the character of others. So Mengzi, this great Confucian thinker, says, develop your benevolence, develop your righteousness or integrity, develop your sense of ritual propriety, your ability to navigate social norms and develop your wisdom and make yourself a better person. And then you can be, you can work with others in your community to make the world a better place. And you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have to correct your mistakes, but we should, that's what you should aspire to be. And Zhuangzi kind of smirks and laughs at that, but in a good natured way. He's like, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to be a pung bird. Well, good on you. If you're a pung bird, be a pung bird. The mm -hmm. cicada and the dove and I are going to hang out in the backyard and sip some wine. <laughs> I love it. I, I recently read uh, over the last couple of weeks, Growing Moral by Stephen Engel, Confucian Guide to Life, and mm -hmm. was able to read a bit of Mengzi and was really struck by the practical nature and practical wisdom of it. Things like, obviously, when people think of Confucius, they may think of a ritual, but even things like reading and reflection, these deep exploration of some of these practical things that, that we do today. Could you talk a little bit about me, maybe ritual and the practical wisdom from Confucianism? Yeah, sure. The Well, I mean, first, just to, to preface that, one thing that some of my students have said they found exciting about studying this stuff is that some of them get to college and it's never occurred to them that you could try to be a better person. And we set so many goals for young people today. It's like play the, learn the violin and play it well, or learn to paint and do it well, or get good grades in school. So we set all these goals for people. But then we forget that another goal you could have is to be a better person. And that's something you could actually work at. And one of the things that's really exciting about the Confucian tradition is they try to give you practical advice about how to get to be a better person. And for Mengzi, a large part of it is recognizing that you do have these good instincts, that you do have compassion for other people. And for a lot of students today, 
this is a shock to be told or to be shown that you actually can and do care about other people because they've been indoctrinated into an ideology that teaches them that they are perfectly self-centered and everybody only cares about themselves. Ironically, Mengzi dealt with that same ideology in ancient China and a lot of his philosophy is showing you, look at your reactions, how you react to things. If you're honest with yourself about your reactions, you'll realize you are ashamed to do certain things because you can see they're wrong. You'll realize that you do have compassion for the suffering of other humans and other sentient creatures. But you're right, a large part of this for the Confucian tradition is what we often translate as ritual or rites. And the term sounds alien and weird, like, well, what are the rites or the rituals? But a lot of what we do in society is governed by conventions and conventional ways of expressing deference or respect for others. And to some extent, this is a matter of etiquette. And But to some extent, it's also a matter of more elaborate rituals. So my my son's getting married next month. And I'm paying for the rehearsal dinner, and I'm going to give a little speech at the end of the rehearsal dinner. That's the rites. That's the ritual. And knowing what the rites or the rituals are is very important for navigating society. Now, I think one important difference from our perspective from the Confucian one is the Confucians tended to assume that there was only one high cultural tradition. Because in fairness, they only really knew about one. So for various reasons throughout East Asia, they tended to think, oh, well, there's this one high cultural tradition and one set of etiquette, and we just, we follow that. There were people like Zhuangzi who criticized that notion, but that tended to be the dominant notion. But we know now there's different kinds of etiquette. And so part of understanding and navigating your way through practical wisdom in contemporary society is understanding different systems of etiquette and what they imply. So, for example, in some American cultures, it's making direct eye contact. Like I was raised, you're supposed to look someone in the eye. And if you expect someone to believe you and take you seriously, you've got to make direct eye contact. In some cultures in the contemporary United States, if you're talking to somebody that you should be showing respect to, you should look down a little bit. And Again, you need to know that because you know that why is this person not making eye contact? Are they like duplicitous? Are they guilty? Like, no, this might be this person showing you respect. Or just things like how close do you stand to somebody when you talk to some cultures in the US? You stand close to people. How loud, how much how much volume should you have in your voice when you're talking in different contexts? Recognizing there are these different traditions of etiquette or ritual, and then adapting and navigating to them with them is part of practical wisdom in contemporary society. And it's tempting to say, well, look, maybe we should just get rid of the rituals. Maybe we should just get rid of all this stuff. But then there'd be no way for humans to interact because we need ways of expressing things like, I'm greeting you as a guest and I want you to be comfortable here and I'm going to work to make you feel invited. There's a classic story that has got to be apocryphal. It's too good to be true, (laughs) but it illustrates this point. Uh, Allegedly, Queen Victoria was at a diplomatic reception for a delegate, an ambassador from a a far-off country. And at a certain point, they uh, served a finger bowl. And I've only once in my life been at a meal that was so fancy They had finger bowls, but if listeners don't know, if you had some finger food at a really fancy dinner, 
they will bring you a bowl of water to dip your fingers in delicately and clean them off before the next course. It's super fancy, high class stuff. <laughs> like once in my life, I was at a dinner fancy enough that we had a finger bowl. But allegedly, it, this happened at Queen Victoria, and the visiting ambassador had never seen a finger bowl before. And so when they brought out the bowl of water, he drank it because he assumed, <laughs> oh, this is some kind of soup or something or some kind of drink. And this is the Victorian area. Everybody's aghast. And they all looked at Queen Victoria to say, see what she's going to do. I don't think this is a true story, but it's a great story. Allegedly, Queen Victoria just picks up the finger bowl and drinks it too. And everybody at the table drinks it just to make the guests feel comfortable yeah. rather than making a scene. That is practical wisdom. And it's a nice illustration of how we need the rites and the rituals, but we have to be flexible in how we apply them. So, Because the point isn't to make people feel uncomfortable and it is not to exclude people just because they don't happen to be part of your in-group that happens to know how you use a finger. I love it. So important and so difficult, these things that require, which so many do, a structure and then also a flexibility at the same time. Well, this has really been great, Brian. I appreciate it. Our time has flown by. Where would you point listeners that are interested in learning more, reading, taking back philosophy, and maybe some of your other works? Yeah, well, I, yeah, sure. I would recommend, of course, the book we've been talking about, Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural Manifesto. If you'd like to learn some more about the indigenous Chinese traditions, there's Ivanhoe, Philip Ivanhoe and Brian Van Norden edited Readings in Classical Chinese Philosophy. I've, as I say, done a complete translation of the Mengzi, this great Confucian work, M-E-N-G-Z-I. And then that pairs well with the writings of the Taoist Zhuangzi, Z-H-U-A-N-G-Z-I. And I've got a website, brianvannorden.com, Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N-V-A-N-N-O-R-D-E-N.com. And I, for there, I've got links to some of my articles, some YouTube lectures I've given on the history of Chinese thought, and some other resources that people might find useful. But those are some great places to start. Well, I love it. And we'll link a bunch of stuff in the show notes so you can easily check it out and, and find what you want to explore further. Brian Van Norden, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.